0: not my first retreat Sunday to be with you and I'll confess I always enjoy these occasions when much of the church is away and it's felt safe to invite me back. Uh, So I'm glad to join you. I I like to think of us here not on the retreat as that segment of the church that is on advance uh, and making progress uh, in the faith. I also like to think of you as the righteous remnant of Israel. Uh, you, you can look that one up in your Strong's Concordance. It's, uh, it's biblical. Uh, it's good to be with you, as uh, it always is, um, uh, and to worship the Lord with you and to open uh, his word and listen for what is there for us. From the Gospel according to Mark, the 11th chapter, beginning at verse 1. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphagee and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say this, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So ends the reading. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. The week that we are beginning, in most churches throughout the world, is a, given a special observance and is known as Holy Week. This day, this Sunday, in churches that follow the the, the Christian calendar, as it's called, is has a twofold character. It's Palm Sunday, uh, commemorating the the event that we just heard described from Mark, and it's also Passion Sunday, preparing us to look forward to the events of the Friday that Christians call good. And next Sunday, of course, is Easter day. These observances commemorate the most important events in history according to the Christian church. And while it has sometimes been suggested that it's not a good biblical practice to observe these we're not and, and to commemorate them, we're not specifically instructed to do so, it seems to me uh, a good and a reasonable practice to turn our minds and hearts to these events as often as we can, we do so every Sunday in the sharing of communion, but to do so as well when our neighbors and friends and family members who worship in different communions are doing so. And so I'd I'd like you at least to consider doing that in the week to come this morning with these words. These events, the history that we look back to in this chapter and the chapters that follow in Mark's gospel, the chapters that conclude all four of our gospels, these are deeply significant events for people who have committed ourselves to follow Jesus as our Lord. For Christians, we commemorate in reading these texts and in reflecting on on them, we commemorate the week the world changed, Or to put it better, we commemorate the week in which God began to change the world through Jesus Christ, through what in this week he did, what he said, what he suffered. It is the week when God began in earnest to make all things new and to make us new as well. The week began, as we have read in chapter 11, so well for Jesus. Can you imagine living through the experience that Jesus lives through in this text? What would it have felt like? The closest I can get is to recall, I'll confess, one of the most thrilling experiences of my life which happened in the Dessau Dance Hall. Won't ask for a show of hands of folks who have been in the Dessau Dance Hall. Don't want to embarrass anybody. Um, I was there as part of a YMCA program called Youth in Government. Um, I came first as a sophomore, first time I saw uh, and fell in love with Austin, driving down Congress Avenue towards the the Capitol. Uh, We'd come from Houston. and. Came my sophomore year, came as a, a trial attorney in a mock case. That we came at a time when the legislature wasn't in session and the courts, for some reason, weren't being used. And so we high school kids got to come and pretend that we were somebody um, and try cases and argue bills in the legislature and, and do the other things that, uh, that grown-ups do uh, in government. Um, enjoyed my first year. Uh, we won our case. Uh, and that turned out to be fun. Came back the second year and ran for youth governor of the state of Texas in the YMCA Youth and Government Program, and I won. Uh, I peaked early is what happened. <laughs> um, on the eve of the election, uh, we had had campaign speeches and events and whatnot. On the eve of the election, they, uh, we gathered for the, uh, the dance Uh, And they had the governor candidates up to answer a couple of questions, softballs. Uh, And so standing up there, I I gave my answers. Um, I had the benefit in my campaign of having been taught in a speech class and at church to stand up uh, in front of a group of people and make a reasonably coherent talk, uh, just as I'm trying to do now. Um, And it went pretty well. And my little session ended with not everybody, but a sizable group of people in the room chanting, Peterson, Peterson, Peterson. And that felt really good, um, I gotta tell you. Uh, I've, uh, I've, uh, looking back, I thought it was probably good that I lost the election for student class representative when I went to college as a freshman. I think it was good that I got out of politics uh, and became a debate nerd. Uh, there are you know, spiritual dangers that other people uh, 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 might weather better. Um, but to be surrounded by people on the streets of Jerusalem, right? This is not, uh, this is not a mock exercise. Jesus is going through. This is Jesus being welcomed to the capital of Jewish faith and expectation and he is surrounded by throngs of people who chant in his honor, a quotation from Psalm chapter 118, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, this person um, for whom we have made a makeshift red carpet by throwing down our outer garments and and tossing leaves on the ground before the colt on which he's riding. What would it be like? Jesus and his disciples have arrived at Jerusalem after the long journey from Galilee. It is just before Passover, the high point of the Jewish year. And by securing this colt and entering the city, Jesus literally fulfills the promise of Zechariah chapter 9 and verses 9 and 10, where the prophet celebrates God's coming deliverance of his people by saying, Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem! Lo, your king comes to you! Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, On a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's not an accident that Jesus sends his disciples for a colt. He has been very guarded in his public ministry about how he describes himself. He wanted his ministry to last longer than a week or two, it seems, and so he didn't go into Galilee or into Jerusalem saying, I am am the, the Messiah who comes to triumph over the forces that oppose God. Rather, he has spoken of himself at, in, uh, in mysterious terms as the son of the man, uh, whatever that means. And it's, it's an expression could be taken different ways, could mean something as simple as I, could mean the son of Adam, could mean all sorts of things. That's how Jesus has referred to himself. And now he doesn't say, I am the Messiah but he does what the prophet said the Messiah would do, coming on a colt and entering Jerusalem. And so there's a shift in the way Jesus is conducting his ministry that we see taking place, and the crowds respond, they acclaim him as the bringer of a new order as the one who is going to establish God's peace, God's judgment, God's kingdom, the coming kingdom of our father David that will return Israel to its glory days, to the height um, of its uh, uh, esteem and honor. That's how the week begins. As we read through the rest of the gospel, As we read through the last chapters of the other Gospels, the week proceeds full of incident and promise. And so as we read on in chapter 11, Jesus pronounces judgment on a barren fruit tree and on a house for the worship of God that doesn't bear the fruit it should. In chapters, at the end of chapter 11 and into chapter 12, Jesus teaches the people in the temple courts. He teaches the teachers of the people, too. He schools them, in fact. But it's it's not all critical. Jesus' message uh, isn't uh, negative with everyone that he encounters. When one scribe recognizes the truth of Jesus' teaching, that the greatest commandments in the law are love of God and love love of neighbor, when this scribe says that those commandments are greater than all offerings and sacrifices, greater, that is, than all the worship of God that you can see going on around you here in the temple, when the scribe says that, Jesus commends him. And he tells him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're getting warm. You are not far from the very kingdom that Jesus is bringing. At the end of chapter 12 and in chapter 13, Jesus teaches not to the public, not to the crowds, he teaches specifically his disciples. He teaches them first that the worth of the sacrifice we offer to God is measured not by its value on the open market. A bull is not worth more to God than a dove. Um, A a thousand dollar bill is not worth more to God than the two copper coins that a widow tosses into the treasury if the person who gives the thousand has millions to spare and if the two coins are all the woman has Our gifts to God are measured by how much of ourselves we have invested in them, because what God wants finally is us, all of us, body and possessions and heart and soul. Then in chapter 13, Jesus teaches his disciples about the difficult days that lie ahead for them after his death and resurrection. He teaches them how they will need to be steadfast and watchful until he returns for them in glory. In chapter 14, we're told of the plot of the leaders to arrest and kill Jesus. We're told of the woman who prepares him, prepares his body for burial in advance. We're told of Judah's decisions to hand Jesus over to the leaders. We're told of his last Passover, with his disciples, we're told about his prayer in Gethsemane and his arrest, about his interrogation before the leaders of the people, about Peter's denial that he was Jesus' follower, his denial that he even knew Jesus. We read also about the tears that Peter cried when he recalled that Jesus had predicted he would do just that. In chapter 15, Jesus is interrogated before the real earthly authority, the Roman governor. He is handed over to the execution squad, falsely uh, sent to die. He is mocked as a pretend king. He is led to the place of crucifixion. His body is fixed to a cross and strung up between two thieves and he is left to die with only the women who had come with him from Galilee to witness his death and the place where his body was laid. And then, in chapter 16, these women come to Jesus' tomb, which is mysteriously empty. They are told that it has been emptied, not by human hands, but by the power of God. And Jesus is risen, and they are told to go tell Jesus' male disciples that he's going before them to Galilee, and they're all going to be reunited, and he especially is looking forward to reunion with Peter, who is singled out for mention in that instruction. These chapters, which we have just skimmed the surface of, are rich chapters in the minds and the hearts and the life of the Christian church. They recount for us the events that form the foundation of the Christian community, of which by God's grace we have been made a part. And I invite you, I invite all of us, to spend some time in these chapters, in the chapters that conclude the other Gospels this week, As I conclude this morning, I'd like to share just a brief reflection on what we might take to be the low point of the story in Mark chapter 15 at the point of Jesus' death on the cross. As we read beginning in chapter 15 and verse 22, then they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his clothes among them, casting lots to decide what each should take. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two bandits, one on his right hand and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, along with the scribes, were also mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now, so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also taunted him. When it was noon, Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. At three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the, the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he is calling for Elijah. And someone ran, filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was God's son. We might take it be the low point of the story. It is certainly sobering. But read in the context of the whole story Mark tells, it is also wondrous. The key, two key passages to look back to in Mark to see what is going on as Jesus dies, I think, are first Mark chapter 10 and verses 42 and following. We won't read them, but Jesus talks there about the kind of power that governors and kings exercise. He says, it's not going to be like that among you, among my followers. Power is going to be exercised differently. Because, he says, the son of the man also came not to be served, to lord it over others. He came to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. Jesus offering to God was all that he was, all that he had as a creature. He was fully invested in what he offered God and he offered himself to God for the many, for the multitude, for all those of us who find ourselves unable to offer all that we are to God. Jesus offered himself that by the power of God in raising him from the dead, by the outpouring of his spirit, we might enter into communion with Jesus and be made, remade into creatures who can give God all we are and who want to. A second passage to look at is Mark chapter 14, and verses 22 and following. The passage we often read when we share communion together, a passage in which Jesus tells his disciples that the Passover meal they're eating, the elements of that meal, the uh, the, the, the bread and the wine, are his body and his blood, so that he gives them fellowship He invites them to participate in the offering that he is making. And by that offering, he says, he establishes a new covenant, a new agreement, a new relationship between the creator and his creatures, between God and all humankind, a covenant that fulfills the promise of the prophet in Jeremiah chapter 31, that one day God would make a covenant in which His will would be written not on tablets of stone to be posted on a wall, but on human hearts, as Rayford reminded us this morning. And what these texts and others tell us is, I think, that Jesus goes to the cross not as a helpless victim of forces that take him off guard and overwhelm him. He goes to the cross with his eyes wide open He goes to the cross offering himself to his father and he goes to the cross inviting his disciples to join him in that offering. He goes to the cross submitting to his father's will and suffering so that we might be delivered from sin and so that all creation might be made new starting with our hearts. Jesus' desolate cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Another quotation from the Psalms, this time the opening verse of Psalm 22. That cry has been much discussed and its meaning debated. Skipping over 20 centuries of uh, argument and debate, which it would take a little time uh, to go through this morning, here's what I think is going on. I've been helped here by A terrific essay by Richard Bauckham, uh, which I will gladly share with uh, anyone uh, who contacts me, uh, or Pam Fowler, if you want, or Melissa, if you want to uh, email me, I'll I'll respond with that and you can share it. Um, What Bauckham suggests is going on as Jesus cries out to God from the cross is Jesus is, right, who has come sharing human experience. He is reaching out to his father in this desperate situation and he is completing his voluntary identification in the course of his life with the greatest desolation that human beings can know. He has been, at this point, mistreated by the powerful, betrayed and denied and abandoned, By his friends, he has been abused and scorned and left to die, ignored by those whom he had chosen as his inner circle. And so he cries out to God and puts his cause before God and experiences his cause even being ignored by the Creator, by his Father. I don't know how this past week has been for you. I don't know what the week to come looks like for you. I don't know what the week to come looks like for me either. None of us does. I do know, and the Christian church professes, that however bad it gets for us, whatever this next week holds, the Son of God has been there before us. He's felt the pain we feel. He has known whatever betrayal, and abandonment has come to us in our life, he has felt as if his cause is ignored by God and he is all alone. Whatever hurt we've known, he's known it before us. But it is that Jesus who now raised from the dead by the power of God, enthroned at God's right hand, it is the Jesus who knows what it is like to be us, who intercedes for us, and for the many, and for all the saints, all the time, he is praying for us, and he is telling his Father, this is how it is with them, welcome them as you raise me from Uh, the, the dead and restored me to fellowship with you. Jesus doesn't promise his disciples a way that will be without difficulties, a way that will involve no pain, no suffering. He does promise that he will accompany us on that journey. He promises us that he will lead us through whatever difficulties face us in the week to come, and the week after that, and the week after that. And if we will remain steadfast, and watchful, he will lead us to the new heavens and the new earth that in the power of God, he died to initiate. May we be encouraged by these words of scripture, by the recollection of the events remembered this week. May we remain faithful and watchful and steadfast and may we inherit the blessing that God has prepared for his saints, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.